Hi everyone and welcome to the This Week in British History podcast. Before we get started, this is an audio version of the YouTube series This Week in British History, which is available on the British History Tours uh, uh, channel. So just to let you know that if you want to watch so that you also get the visuals, there is a link in the show notes on this podcast, which will give you the link to YouTube. But I've also recorded this, so in a way that I hope you can enjoy it fully also as a podcast. All right, let's get started. Hello, history lovers. Welcome to this episode of In This Week in British History with me, Philippa Lacey Brule from British History Tours. Uh, we do British history tours in Britain based on history, uh, as the name suggests. So, uh, but there's also lots more um, that I do here with history videos and virtual tours. You can also find me on Facebook and on Instagram. And for those of you who are really into your British history, then I also run the British History Membership. So what will we be looking at in this episode? Well, each week we look at some of the events which have happened uh, in the last seven days in history in the British Isles. This week we are looking at a range of interesting things. We have the beginning of the very swift downfall of Anne Boleyn and we will be charting that over the next few weeks. We have a mutiny on the bounty. The Stone of Scone is stolen from Scotland and brought to Westminster and the United Kingdom of Great Britain is formed. Have you heard of the mutiny on the bounty? This is a true but legendary story about a captain and 12 of his most loyal men cast uh, away on a small schooner away from their ship, the bounty. And it's the tale of their survival, incredible survival, in a small boat in extreme conditions and over thousands of miles until they reach safety. The mutiny on the bounty has been the topic of many books and films and most recently a, a reality sort of recreation of the plight of, um, of Blythe and his crew and sort of living history if you like um, recreated the journey and the hardships that um, that the, the crew must have been through um, and I've put a link to the show notes uh, in the show notes sorry to uh, to that series and to some clips from it if you're interested in seeing that so the mutiny on the bounty happened on the 28th of April 1789 Captain William Blythe was supposedly quite an oppressive captain. He actually uh, suffered three mutinies during his career. But this one was headed by his first officer, Fletcher Christian. Christian and his co-conspirators set adrift uh, Blythe and 18 of his loyal men in an overcrowded 23-foot schooner. They were basically handing out a slow death sentence to Blythe and his, uh, and his remaining crew. Blythe and his men were not expected to survive and yet they managed a 3,600 mile journey turning up in Timor in the West Indies on the 14th of June. Once Blythe got back to England he set sail again for Tahiti to finish the job that he was in the middle of 
when the mutiny happened, which was delivering breadfruit trees to the West Indies. Christian and his co-conspirators tried to set up colonies on uninhabited islands. After a few attempts, many settled on Pitcairn Island, an, an, an uninhabited volcanic island. Those who had remained on Tahiti had been arrested, taken back to England and hung for treason. In 1808, an American whaling vessel noticed smoke coming from the supposedly uninhabited Pitcairn Island. On investigation, they found a colony of people there, it being headed up by a man called John Adams, the sole survivor by this point of Christian and his conspirators from the bounty. In 1825, Adams was granted amnesty and he served as the patriarch of the colony until his death in 1829. We have two events this week which concern the relationship between England and Scotland. The first one going back all the way to 1296, the reign of Edward I of England. There had been a succession crisis in Scotland where over a few years practically well, all of the direct heirs to the Scottish throne had died in one way or another. And Edward seen at the time as a friend to Scotland, a friendly neighbour, was asked to oversee the selection for the next King of Scotland. This played right into Edward's hands. He had already become overlord of the Welsh and he wanted to do the same with the Scottish. So it was in his interest to make the succession crisis last for as long as possible under the guise of being really thorough in deciding who should have such a uh, in the, well, the most important role in Scotland. His choice had been a man called John Balliol who had become John I of Scotland. Not long after Balliol was crowned King of Scotland he made his way to Newcastle to the Christmas court of Edward I. Uh, Newcastle is in the north of England. He travelled there to pay homage to Edward I as his overlord. However, Balliol didn't turn out to be quite as malleable as Edward had hoped and the subsequent unrest led to Balliol being arrested and incarcerated in the Tower of London. While Balliol was incarcerated, Edward confiscated the Stone of Scone. Now the Stone of Scone had been held at Scone Abbey in Scotland and had been traditionally where every King of Scotland had been crowned. This was a significant move by Edward. He had taken the sacred stone of, of Scone, also known as the Stone of Destiny, where kings of Scotland had been crowned for centuries and had taken it to Westminster. This was a physical movement of the kings of Scotland being underneath the power of the kings of England. Edward had a coronation chair created with uh, a space underneath it for the Stone of Scone and that stayed in Westminster until 1996 when it was returned to Scotland by our current Queen and our Parliament. The stone is held in Edinburgh and will return to Westminster for subsequent coronations. When I was researching this story I found a little account that uh, cast doubt as to whether Edward had actually uh, stolen the correct stone, which asserted that perhaps the monks of Scone had substituted the real stone for a 
fake and therefore it wasn't the sacred uh, stone of scone which had come to Westminster and whereby every mon English and subsequently British monarch had been uh, crowned on top of. Um, and that perhaps the monks had either buried it or cast it into a river. Um, now, although there's I, maybe perhaps no evidence that that happened, um, that I, I quite like that, uh, that idea. The second event pertinent to the relationship between England and Scotland is the act which created the United Kingdom of Great Britain. And we had had a, un a unification of crowns since 1603 when James VI of Scotland had succeeded Elizabeth I of England to the throne of England and therefore became king of both Scotland and England. That was his personal role, if you like. It did not mean that the countries became united at that point. The unification of the countries didn't actually happen until the final Stuart monarch was on the throne, Queen Anne, and it happened in 1707. The Act of Union was in fact two Acts of Parliament. The Act of Union with Scotland, which happened in the English Parliament in 1706, and the Act of uh, Union with England, which happened in the Scottish Parliament in 1707. So the 1st of May 1707 marks the formal adoption of the Treaty of Union which had been agreed in July 1706. What this meant was the separate Kingdom of England and Kingdom of Scotland came together to be known as the United Kingdom of Great Britain. What this meant in effect was that the Parliaments of Scotland and England united to form a Parliament of Great Britain which would now meet in the home of the English Parliament, the Houses of Parliament in London. It's this unification of separate countries and the fact that we're also a, an island and then there are many islands around us that give rise to the different names by which this, this country is referred to. So we have the United Kingdom, sometimes England is used to refer to the whole um, of the Isles which is not correct, uh, Great Britain, the British Isles, all of these refer to slightly different uh, elements of what this, how this country is made. As promised, we're going to chart the rapid fall of Anne Boleyn, which started in this week in 1536. On the 29th of April, Anne had had an argument with Henry Norris. Henry Norris was groom of the stool to Henry VIII and one of his closest friends. Norris was engaged to one of Anne's ladies-in-waiting and her cousin, Madge Shelton. Anne challenged Norris as to why he was taking so long to get round to marrying Madge. When he gave her a non-committal answer, she shot back at him, You look for dead man's shoes, for if aught came to the king but good, you should look to have me. Norris was horrified and he replied, If he had any such thought, he would his head were off. Anne was immediately frightened by her words and the repercussions they could bring. Not only was this an inappropriate thing to say for a married woman, she wasn't any old married woman, she was married to the king and she had also uttered words that spoke about the king's death. Anne was right to be scared. Her words were used as evidence against her to prove a relationship between her and Norris and also that there was a plot to kill the king. On the 30th of April, Anne was seen arguing with Henry VIII um, and also the first of the arrests of the men were made. 
Mark Smeaton was taken to Thomas Cromwell's house to be interrogated. 24 hours later, he'd confessed to having sex with the Queen on three occasions. Whether or not Smeaton was tortured, we can't say for sure, but he didn't show any signs, or it wasn't reported that he showed any signs of um, physical injury when he went to the scaffolding on the 17th of May, where he was beheaded. Um, if he'd have been racked, he wouldn't have been able to walk by himself, and there's no mention of him being helped up to the scaffold. But possibly psychological torture was employed, um, maybe promises that his sentence would be commuted. Um, he was not a noble, so he, if he was uh, convicted of treason, then his sentence would have been the horrendous being hung, drawn and quartered. Anne and Henry were at Greenwich Palace when the argument between them was seen. Anne was seen holding up Elizabeth to Henry and pleading with him. Now, although we don't know exactly what the argument was about, we don't know what words were uttered, um, we could maybe surmise that this had something to do with Henry hearing of the conversation that Anne had had with Henry Norris the day before. Whatever was going on on the 30th of April, travel plans for the court had been abruptly changed. The court should have been going to Rochester on the first leg of a trip to Calais, which was now supposedly postponed and was only going to have Henry take part as opposed to Henry and Anne. The following day, on the 1st of May, the May Day Joust took place at Greenwich Palace. Anne sat next to Henry, probably, well, definitely unaware of the events that were about to unfold so quickly over the following few, uh, couple of weeks. Henry Norris was uh, leading the defenders against Anne's own brother, George Boleyn, who was leading the challengers. Henry VIII was sat sitting this one out because of an injury he had sustained earlier on in the year. So all probably seemed well to Anne. Maybe she had an inkling that Henry wasn't the happiest he'd been, but maybe that she'd weathered this, um, this recent storm and the argument with Norris wasn't going to have any uh, major repercussions. Henry showed no sign of being displeased. Henry Norris's uh, horse wouldn't run in, in one of the, uh, the jousts and uh, Henry offered him his own horse. Yet, at the end of the joust, Henry had received a letter and he abruptly left, taking only six attendants with him and riding on horseback uh, back to Westminster Palace from Greenwich. Those attendants included Henry Norris, who was interrogated by Henry VIII for the hour-long ride back to Westminster. Anne was left at Greenwich and never saw Henry again. One of Norris's servants reported that Norris had been repeatedly questioned by the king and the king saying, um, just tell me the truth. You'll have a pardon if you just tell me the truth. The letter Henry received was probably from Cromwell with detail of Smeaton's confession and he was trying to get out of Norris what he knew about the, the, the accusations against the Queen. By the end of the day, on the 2nd of May, Henry Norris, George Boleyn, and Anne were all in the Tower of London. Now, Anne was at Greenwich watching a real tennis match, 
when she received a summons to go to the Privy Council. When she reached the council chamber, the Royal Commission, which included her uncle, the Duke of Norfolk, were there and they informed her that she was being accused of adultery. They told her she was being accused of adultery with three men, although they only named two, Smeaton and Norris, and protested her innocence, but of course that was to no avail and she was taken to the tower at about two o'clock that afternoon by barge. She entered through a gate in the Byward Tower, so not Traitor's Gate as uh, some stories go, and she was conveyed to the same apartments where she had stayed the night before her coronation. Once in the tower, Anne was under the watchful eye of the constable of the tower, Sir William Kingston, and he was reporting back everything Anne said to Cromwell. Anne must have felt incredible dread and fear, and she began to talk a lot and her ramblings possibly led to a further arrest the day after. In a conversation Anne had with Kingston, she asked, shall I die without justice? To which Kingston replied, even the poorest of the king's subjects has justice. To which Anne laughed. Not only does that show that she doubted that real justice would be done, but that perhaps it was really dawning on her now, the hopelessness of her situation. On the 3rd of May, Anne continued to talk and Kingston continued to report back to Cromwell what she had been saying. She was talking out loud about why, or going through why she thought Norris had been arrested alongside her. And Kingston reported back to Cromwell that she said that she more feared Weston than talking about Norris. Anne had reprimanded Weston for being in love with one of her ladies and waiting more than he was his, his own wife. When she confronted him, he had apparently said that there was one in the house that he loved above all others. When she pressed him as to who that was, he said, it's you. Not surprisingly, once that report got back to Cromwell, Weston was also arrested and sent to the tower. Thank you for watching this episode of In This Week in British History. If you've enjoyed it, please make sure you're subscribed to the channel and you click the bell so that you get notifications when I upload a new episode. They go live every Sunday, but in the meantime, there are also virtual tours that I publish and there's quite a library of uh, old history videos as well um, that I have put in the past. There's plenty of on-location videos which I know people enjoy, um, especially if you're someone who can't travel to any of these places or you are going to be able to travel and you are busy making your bucket list. I love, I love helping people um, work out where they want to go. So thank you very much for watching again. I really appreciate you uh, being here. Um, please share this with your friends if you enjoy it, gives it give it a thumbs up and if you comment below I will uh, reply to your comment. I'll see you all soon, take care.